英語聞き流し世界名作リスニング英語テキストと MP3 ダウンロード他の物語はホームページからご利用いただけます 88thpp.com 88thpp.com Chapter 12 Camp Lawrence Beth was postmistress, for, being most at home, she could attend to it regularly, and dearly liked the daily task of unlocking the little door and distributing the mail. One July day she came in with her hands full, and went about the house leaving letters and parcels like the penny post. Here's your posy, mother. Lori never forgets that, she said, putting the fresh nosegay in the vase that stood in mommy's corner, and was kept supplied by the affectionate boy. Miss Meg March, one letter and a glove, continued Beth, delivering the articles to her sister, who sat near her mother, stitching wristbands. Why, I left a pair over there, and here is only one, said Meg, looking at the grey cotton glove. Didn't you drop the other in the garden? No, I'm sure I didn't, for there was only one in the office. I hate to have odd gloves. Never mind, the other may be found. My letter is only a translation of the German song I wanted. I think Mr. Brooke did it, for this isn't Laurie's writing. Mrs. March glanced at Meg, who was looking very pretty in her gingham morning gown, with the little curls blowing about her forehead, and very womanly, as she sat sewing at her little work table, full of tidy white rolls, so unconscious of the thought in her mother's mind as she sewed and sang, while her fingers flew and her thoughts were busied with girlish fancies as innocent and fresh as the pansies in her belt, that Mrs. March smiled and was satisfied. Two letters for Dr. Joe, a book, and a funny old hat, which covered the whole post office and stuck outside said Beth, laughing as she went into the study where Joe sat writing. What a sly fellow Lori is. I said I wished bigger hats were the fashion, because I burn my face every hot day. He said, why mind the fashion? Wear a big hat, and be comfortable. I said I would if I had one, and he has sent me this, to try me. I'll wear it for fun, and show him I don't care for the fashion. And hanging the antique broad brim on a bust of Plato, Joe read her letters. One from her mother made her cheeks glow and her eyes fill, for it said to her, my dear. I write a little word to tell you with how much satisfaction I watch your efforts to control your temper. You say nothing about your trials, failures, or successes, and think, perhaps, that no one sees them but the friend whose help you daily ask, if I may trust the well-worn cover of your guidebook. I, too, have seen them all, and heartily believe in the sincerity of your resolution, since it begins to bear fruit. Go on, dear, patiently and bravely, and always believe that no one sympathizes more tenderly with you than your loving. Mother. That does me good. That's worth millions of money and pecks of praise. Oh, mommy, I do try. I will keep on trying, and not get tired, since I have you to help me. Laying her head on her arms, Joe wet her little romance with a few happy tears, for she had thought that no one saw and appreciated her efforts to be good, and this assurance was doubly precious, doubly encouraging, because unexpected and from the person whose commendation she most valued. Feeling stronger than ever to meet and subdue her Apollyon, she pinned the note inside her frock, as a shield and a reminder, lest she be taken unaware, and proceeded to open her other letter, quite ready for either good or bad news. In a big, dashing hand, Lori wrote. Dear Joe, what ho! Some English girls and boys are coming to see me tomorrow and I want to have a jolly time. If it's fine, I'm going to pitch my tent in Longmeadow, and row up the whole crew to lunch and croquet, have a fire, make messes, gypsy fashion, and all sorts of larks. They are nice people, and like such things. Brooke will go to keep us boys steady, and Kate Vaughn will play propriety for the girls. I want you all to come, can't let Beth off at any price, and nobody shall worry her. 
don't bother about rations, I'll see to that and everything else, only do come, there's a good fellow. In a tearing hurry, yours ever, Laurie. Here's richness, cried Joe, flying in to tell the news to Meg. Of course we can go, mother. It will be such a help to Laurie, for I can row, and Meg see to the lunch, and the children be useful in some way. I hope the Vaughns are not fine grown-up people. Do you know anything about them, Joe? Asked Meg. Only that there are four of them. Kate is older than you, Fred and Frank, twins, about my age, and a little girl, Grace, who is nine or ten. Lori knew them abroad, and liked the boys. I fancied, from the way he primmed up his mouth in speaking of her, that he didn't admire Kate much. I'm so glad my French print is clean, it's just the thing and so becoming. Observed Meg complacently. Have you anything decent, Joe? Scarlet and grey boating suit, good enough for me. I shall row and tramp about, so I don't want any starch to think of. You'll come, Betty? If you won't let any boys talk to me. Not a boy. I like to please Laurie, and I'm not afraid of Mr. Brooke, he is so kind. But I don't want to play, or sing, or say anything. I'll work hard and not trouble anyone, and you'll take care of me, Joe, so I'll go. That's my good girl. You do try to fight off your shyness, and I love you for it. Fighting faults isn't easy, as I know, and a cheery word kind of gives a lift. Thank you, mother, and Joe gave the thin cheek a grateful kiss, more precious to Mrs. March than if it had given back the rosy roundness of her youth. I had a box of chocolate drops, and the picture I wanted to copy, said Amy, showing her mail. And I got a note from Mr. Lawrence, asking me to come over and play to him tonight, before the lamps are lighted, and I shall go, added Beth, whose friendship with the old gentleman prospered finely. Now let's fly round, and do double duty today so that we can play tomorrow with free minds, said Joe, preparing to replace her pen with a broom. When the son peeped into the girl's room early next morning to promise them a fine day, he saw a comical sight. Each had made such preparation for the fate as seemed necessary and proper. Meg had an extra row of little curl papers across her forehead, Joe had copiously anointed her afflicted face with cold cream, Beth had taken Joanna to bed with her to atone for the approaching separation, and Amy had capped the climax by putting a clothespin on her nose to uplift the offending feature. It was one of the kind artists used to hold the paper on their drawing boards, therefore quite appropriate and effective for the purpose it was now being put. This funny spectacle appeared to amuse the sun, for he burst out with such radiance that Joe woke up and roused her sisters by a hearty laugh at Amy's ornament. Sunshine and laughter were good omens for a pleasure party, and soon a lively bustle began in both houses. Beth, who was ready first, kept reporting what went on next door, and enlivened her sister's toilets by frequent telegrams from the window. There goes the man with the tent. I see Mrs. Barker doing up the lunch in a hamper in a great basket. Now Mr. Lawrence is looking up at the sky and the weathercock. I wish he would go too. There's Laurie, looking like a sailor, nice boy. Oh mercy me. Here's a carriage full of people, a tall lady, a little girl, and two dreadful boys. One is lame, poor thing, he's got a crutch. Laurie didn't tell us that. Be quick, girls. It's getting late. Why, there is Ned Moffat, I do declare. Meg, isn't that the man who bowed to you one day when we were shopping? So it is. How queer that he should come. I thought he was at the mountains. There is Sally. I'm glad she got back in time. Am I all right, Joe? cried Megan a flutter. A regular daisy. Hold up your dress and put your hat on straight, it looks sentimental tip that way and will fly off at the first puff. Now then, come on. Oh, Joe, you are not going to wear that awful hat? It's too absurd. You shall not make a guy of yourself, remonstrated Meg, as Joe tied down with a red ribbon the broad-brimmed, 
old-fashioned leghorn Laurie had sent for a joke. I just will, though, or it's capital, so shady, light, and big. It will make fun, and I don't mind being a guy if I'm comfortable. With that Joe marched straight away and the rest followed, a bright little band of sisters, all looking their best in summer suits, with happy faces under the jaunty hat brims. Laurie ran to meet and present them to his friends in the most cordial manner. The lawn was the reception room, and for several minutes a lively scene was enacted there. Mig was grateful to see that Miss Kate, though twenty, was dressed with a simplicity which American girls would do well to imitate, and who was much flattered by Mr. Ned's assurances that he came especially to see her. Joe understood why Laurie primmed up his mouth when speaking of Kate, for that young lady had a standoff don't touch me air, which contrasted strongly with the free and easy demeanor of the other girls. Beth took an observation of the new boys and decided that the lame one was not dreadful, but gentle and feeble, and she would be kind to him on that account. Amy found Grace a well-mannered, merry, little person, and after staring dumbly at one another for a few minutes, they suddenly became very good friends. Tense, lunch, and croquet utensils having been sent on beforehand, the party was soon embarked, and the two boats pushed off together, leaving Mr. Lawrence waving his hat on the shore. Laurie and Joe rowed one boat, Mr. Brooke and Ned the other, while Fred Vaughn, the riotous twin, did his best to upset both by paddling about in a wary like a disturbed water bug. Joe's funny hat deserved a vote of thanks, for it was of general utility. It broke the ice in the beginning by producing a laugh, it created quite a refreshing breeze, flapping to and fro as she rode, and would make an excellent umbrella for the whole party, if a shower came up, she said. Miss Kate decided that she was odd, but rather clever, and smiled upon her from afar. Meg, in the other boat, was delightfully situated, face to face with the rowers, who both admired the prospect and feathered their oars with uncommon skill and dexterity. Mr. Brooke was a grave, silent young man, with handsome brown eyes and a pleasant voice. Meg liked his quiet manners and considered him a walking encyclopedia of useful knowledge. He never talked to her much, but he looked at her a good deal, and she felt sure that he did not regard her with aversion. Ned, being in college, of course put on all the airs which freshmen think it their bounden duty to assume. He was not very wise, but very good-natured, and altogether an excellent person to carry on a picnic. Sally Gardner was absorbed in keeping her white peak dress clean and chattering with the ubiquitous Fred, who kept Beth in constant terror by his pranks. It was not far to Longmeadow, but the tent was pitched and the wickets down by the time they arrived. A pleasant green field, with three wide-spreading oaks in the middle and a smooth strip of turf for croquet. Welcome to Camp Lawrence, said the young host, as they landed with exclamations of delight. Brooke is commander-in-chief, I am commissary-general, the other fellows are staff officers, and you, ladies, are company. The tent is for your especial benefit and that oak is your drawing room, this is the mess room and the third is the camp kitchen. Now, let's have a game before it gets hot, and then we'll see about dinner. Frank, Beth, Amy, and Grace sat down to watch the game played by the other eight. Mr. Brooke chose Meg, Kate, and Fred. Lori took Sally, Joe, and Ned. The English played well, but the Americans played better, and contested every inch of the ground as strongly as if the spirit of 76 inspired them. Joe and Fred had several skirmishes and once narrowly escaped high words. Joe was through the last wicket and had missed the stroke, which failure ruffled her a good deal. Fred was close behind her and his turn came before hers. He gave a stroke, his ball hit the wicket, and stopped an inch on the wrong side. No one was very near, and running up to examine, he gave it a sly nudge with his toe, which put it just an inch on the right side. I'm through. Now, Miss Joe, I'll settle you, and get in first, cried the young gentleman, swinging his mallet for another blow. You pushed it. I saw you. 
It's my turn now, said Joe sharply. Upon my word, I didn't move it. It rolled a bit, perhaps, but that is allowed. So, stand off please, and let me have a go at the steak. We don't cheat in America, but you can, if you choose, said Joe angrily. Yankees are a deal the most tricky, everybody knows. There you go. Returned Fred croqueting her ball far away. Joe opened her lips to say something rude, but checked herself in time, colored up to her forehead and stood a minute, hammering down a wicket with all her might, while Fred hit the stake and declared himself out with much exultation. She went off to get her ball, and was a long time finding it among the bushes, but she came back, looking cool and quiet, and waited her turn patiently. It took several strokes to regain the place she had lost, and when she got there, the other side had nearly won, for Kate's ball was the last but one and lay near the stake. By George, it's all up with us. Goodbye, Kate. Miss Joe owes me one, so you are finished, cried Fred excitedly, as they all drew near to see the finish. Yankees have a trick of being generous to their enemies, said Joe, with a look that made the lad redden, especially when they beat them, she added, as, leaving Kate's ball untouched, she won the game by a clever stroke. Laurie threw up his hat, then remembered that it wouldn't do to exult over the defeat of his guests, and stopped in the middle of the cheer to whisper to his friend, good for you, Joe. He did cheat, I saw him. We can't tell him so, but he won't do it again, take my word for it. Meg drew her aside, under pretense of pinning up a loose braid, and said approvingly, it was dreadfully provoking, but you kept your temper, and I'm so glad, Joe. Don't praise me, Meg, for I could box his ears this minute. I should certainly have boiled over if I hadn't stayed among the nettles till I got my rage under control enough to hold my tongue. It's simmering now, so I hope he'll keep out of my way, returned Joe, biting her lips as she glowered at Fred from under her big hat. Time for lunch, said Mr. Brooke, looking at his watch. Commissary General, will you make the fire and get water, while Miss March, Miss Sally and I spread the table? Who can make good coffee? Joe can, said Meg, glad to recommend her sister. So Joe, feeling that her late lessons in cookery were to do her honor, went to preside over the coffee pot, while the children collected dry sticks, and the boys made a fire and got water from a spring nearby. Miss Kate sketched and Frank talked to Beth, who was making little mats of braided rushes to serve as plates. The commander-in-chief and his aide soon spread the tablecloth with an inviting array of eatables and drinkables, prettily decorated with green leaves. Joe announced that the coffee was ready, and everyone settled themselves to a hearty meal, for youth is seldom dyspeptic, and exercise develops wholesome appetites. A very merry lunch it was, for everything seemed fresh and funny, and frequent peals of laughter startled a venerable horse who fed nearby. There was a pleasing inequality in the table, which produced many mishaps to cups and plates, acorns dropped in the milk, Little black ants partook of the refreshments without being invited, and fuzzy caterpillars swung down from the tree to see what was going on. Three white-headed children peeped over the fence, and an objectionable dog barked at them from the other side of the river with all his might and main. There's salt here, said Laurie, as he handed Joe a saucer of berries. Thank you, I prefer spiders, she replied, fishing up two unwary little ones who had gone to a creamy death. How dare you remind me of that horrid dinner party, when yours is so nice in every way added Joe, as they both laughed and ate out of one plate, the china having run short. I had an uncommonly good time that day, and haven't got over it yet. This is no credit to me, you know, I don't do anything. It's you and Megan Brooke who make it all go, and I'm no end obliged to you. What shall we do when we can't eat anymore? Asked Laurie, feeling that his trump card had been played when lunch was over. Have games till it's cooler. I brought authors, and I dare say Miss Kate knows something new and nice. Go and ask her she's company, and you ought to stay with her more. 
aren't you company too? I thought she'd suit Brooke, but he keeps talking to Meg, and Kate just stares at them through that ridiculous glass of hers. I'm going, so you needn't try to preach propriety, for you can't do it, Joe. Miss Kate did know several new games, and as the girls would not, and the boys could not, eat any more, they all adjourned to the drawing room to play rigmarole. One person begins a story, any nonsense you like, and tells as long as he pleases, only taking care to stop short at some exciting point, when the next takes it up and does the same. It's very funny when well done, and makes a perfect bimble of tragical comical stuff to laugh over. Please start it, Mr. Brooke, said Kate, with a commanding air, which surprised Meg, who treated the tutor with as much respect as any other gentleman. Lying on the grass at the feet of the two young ladies, Mr. Brooke obediently began the story, with the handsome brown eyes steadily fixed upon the sunshiny river. Once on a time, a knight went out into the world to seek his fortune, for he had nothing but his sword and his shield. He travelled a long while, nearly eight and twenty years, and had a hard time of it, till he came to the palace of a good old king, who had offered a reward to anyone who could tame and train a fine but unbroken colt, of which he was very fond. The knight agreed to try, and got on slowly but surely, for the colt was a gallant fellow, and soon learned to love his new master, though he was freakish and wild. Every day, when he gave his lessons to this pet of the king's, the knight rode him through the city, and as he rode, he looked everywhere for a certain beautiful face, which he had seen many times in his dreams, but never found. One day, as he went prancing down a quiet street, he saw at the window of a ruinous castle the lovely face. He was delighted, inquired who lived in this old castle, and was told that several captive princesses were kept there by a spell, and spun all day to lay up money to buy their liberty. The knight wished intensely that he could free them, but he was poor and could only go by each day, watching for the sweet face and longing to see it out in the sunshine. At last he resolved to get into the castle and ask how he could help them. He went and knocked. The great door flew open, and he beheld. A ravishingly lovely lady, who exclaimed, with a cry of rapture, at last. At last. Continued Kate, who had read French novels, and admired the style. Tis she. Cried Count Gustave, and fell at her feet in an ecstasy of joy. Oh, rise. She said, extending a hand of marble fairness. Never. Till you tell me how I may rescue you, swore the knight, still kneeling. Alas, my cruel fate condemns me to remain here till my tyrant is destroyed. Where is the villain? In the mauve salon. Go, brave heart, and save me from despair. I obey, and return victorious or dead. With these thrilling words he rushed away, and flinging open the door of the mauve salon, was about to enter, when he received. A stunning blow from the big Greek lexicon, which an old fellow in a black gown fired at him, said Ned. Instantly, Sir What's-His-Name recovered himself, pitched the tyrant out of the window, and turned to join the lady, victorious, but with a bump on his brow, found the door locked, tore up the curtains, made a rope ladder, got halfway down when the ladder broke, and he went headfirst into the moat, sixty feet below. Could swim like a duck, paddled round the castle till he came to a little door guarded by two stout fellows, knocked their heads together till they cracked like a couple of nuts, then, by a trifling exertion of his prodigious strength, he smashed in the door, went up a pair of stone steps covered with dust a foot thick, toads as big as your fist, and spiders that would frighten you into hysterics, Miss March. At the top of these steps he came plump upon a sight that took his breath away and chilled his blood. A tall figure, all in white with a veil over its face and a lamp in its wasted hand, went on Meg. It beckoned, gliding noiselessly before him down a corridor as dark and cold as any tomb. Shadowy effigies and armor stood on either side, a dead silence reigned, the lamp burned blue and the ghostly figure ever and anon turned its face toward him, showing the glitter of awful eyes through its white veil. They reached a curtain door behind which sounded lovely music. 
he sprang forward to enter, but the specter plucked him back, and waved threateningly before him a snuffbox, said Joe, in a sepulchral tone, which convulsed the audience. Thank ye, said the knight politely, as he took a pinch and sneezed seven times so violently that his head fell off. Ha! Ha! laughed the ghost, and having peeped through the keyhole at the princesses spinning away for dear life, the evil spirit picked up her victim and put him in a large tin box, where there were eleven other knights packed together without their heads, like sardines, who all rose and began to dance a hornpipe, cut in Fred, as Joe paused for breath, and, as they danced, the rubbishy old castle turned to a man-of-war in full sail. Up with the jib, reef the topsail halyards, helm heartily, and man the guns, roared the captain, as a Portuguese pirate hove in sight, with a flag black as ink flying from her foremast. Go in and win, my hearties, says the captain, and a tremendous fight began. Of course the British beat, they always do. No, they don't, cried Joe, aside. Having taken the pirate captain prisoner, sailed slap over the schooner, whose decks were piled high with dead and whose lee scuppers ran blood, for the order had been cutlasses, and die hard. Bosun's mate, take a bite of the flying jib sheet, and start this villain if he doesn't confess his sins double quick, said the British captain. The Portuguese held his tongue like a brick, and walked the plank, while the jolly tars cheered like mad. But the sly dog dived, came up under the man-of-war, scuttled her, and down she went, with all sail set, to the bottom of the sea, sea, sea where? Oh gracious! What shall I say? cried Sally, as Fred ended his rigmarole, in which he had jumbled together pell-mell nautical phrases and facts out of one of his favorite books. Well, they went to the bottom, and a nice mermaid welcomed them, but was much grieved on finding the box of headless knights, and kindly pickled them in brine, hoping to discover the mystery about them, for being a woman, she was curious. By and by a diver came down, and the mermaid said, I'll give you a box of pearls if you can take it up, for she wanted to restore the poor things to life, and couldn't raise the heavy load herself. So the diver hoisted it up, and was much disappointed on opening it to find no pearls. He left it in a great lonely field, where it was found by a little goose girl, who kept a hundred fat geese in the field, said Amy, when Sally's invention gave out. The little girl was sorry for them, and asked an old woman what she should do to help them. Your geese will tell you, they know everything. Said the old woman. So she asked what she should use for new heads, since the old ones were lost, and all the geese opened their hundred mouths and screamed. Cabbages. Continued Laurie promptly. Just the thing, said the girl, and ran to get twelve fine ones from her garden. She put them on, the knights revived at once, thanked her, and went on their way rejoicing, never knowing the difference, for there were so many other heads like them in the world that no one thought anything of it. The knight in whom I'm interested went back to find the pretty face, and learned that the princesses had spun themselves free and all gone and married, but one. He was in a great state of mind at that, and mounting the colt, who stood by him through thick and thin, rushed to the castle to see which was left. Peeping over the hedge, he saw the queen of his affections picking flowers in her garden. Will you give me a rose? said he. You must come and get it. I can't come to you, it isn't proper, said she, as sweet as honey. He tried to climb over the hedge, but it seemed to grow higher and higher. Then he tried to push through, but it grew thicker and thicker, and he was in despair. So he patiently broke twig after twig till he had made a little hole through which he peeped, saying imploringly, let me in. Let me in. But the pretty princess did not seem to understand, for she picked her roses quietly, and left him to fight his way in. Whether he did or not, Frank will tell you. I can't. I'm not playing, I never do, said Frank, dismayed at the sentimental predicament out of which he was to rescue the absurd couple. Beth had disappeared behind Joe, and Grace was asleep. 
So the poor knight is to be left sticking in the hedge, is he? asked Mr. Brooke, still watching the river and playing with a wild rose in his buttonhole. I guess the princess gave him a posy, and opened the gate after a while, said Laurie, smiling to himself, as he threw acorns at his tutor. What a piece of nonsense we have made. With practice we might do something quite clever. Do you know truth? I hope so, said Meg soberly. The game, I mean. What is it? said Fred. Why, you pile up your hands, choose a number, and draw out in turn, and the person who draws at the number has to answer truly any question put by the rest. It's great fun. Let's try it, said Joe, who liked new experiments. Miss Kate and Mr. Brooke, Meg, and Ned declined, but Fred, Sally, Joe, and Laurie piled and drew, and the lot fell to Laurie. Who are your heroes? asked Joe. Grandfather and Napoleon. Which lady here do you think prettiest? said Sally. Margaret. Which do you like best? From Fred. Joe, of course. What silly questions you ask. And Joe gave a disdainful shrug as the rest laughed at Laurie's matter-of-fact tone. Try again. Truth isn't a bad game, said Fred. It's a very good one for you, retorted Joe in a low voice. Her turn came next. What is your greatest fault? asked Fred, by way of testing in her the virtue he lacked himself. A quick temper. What do you most wish for? said Laurie. A pair of boot lacings, returned Joe, guessing and defeating his purpose. Not a true answer. You must say what you really do want most. Genius. Don't you wish you could give it to me, Laurie? And she slyly smiled in his disappointed face. What virtues do you most admire in a man? asked Sally. Courage and honesty. Now my turn, said Fred, as his hand came last. Let's give it to him, whispered Laurie to Joe, who nodded and asked at once. Didn't you cheat at croquet? Well, yes, a little bit. Good. Didn't you take your story out of the sea lion? said Laurie. Rather. Don't you think the English nation perfect in every respect? asked Sally. I should be ashamed of myself if I didn't. He's a true John Bull. Now, Miss Sally, you shall have a chance without waiting to draw. I'll harrow up your feelings first by asking if you don't think you are something of a flirt, said Laurie, as Joe nodded to Fred as a sign that peace was declared. You impertinent boy. Of course I'm not, exclaimed Sally, with an air that proved the contrary. What do you hate most? asked Fred. Spiders and rice pudding. What do you like best? asked Joe. Dancing in French gloves. Well, I think truth is a very silly play. Let's have a sensible game of authors to refresh our minds, proposed Joe. Ned, Frank, and the little girls joined in this and while it went on, the three elders sat apart, talking. Miss Kate took out her sketch again, and Margaret watched her, while Mr. Brooke lay on the grass with a book, which he did not read. How beautifully you do it. I wish I could draw, said Meg, with mingled admiration and regret in her voice. Why don't you learn? I should think you had taste and talent for it, replied Miss Kate graciously. I haven't time. Your mama prefers other accomplishments, I fancy. So did mine, but I proved to her that I had talent by taking a few lessons privately, and then she was quite willing I should go on. Can't you do the same with your governess? I have none. I forgot young ladies in America go to school more than with us. Very fine schools they are, too, Papa says. You go to a private one, I suppose? I don't go at all. I am a governess myself. Oh, indeed said Miss Kate, but she might as well have said, dear me, how dreadful. For her tone implied it, 
and something in her face made Meg color, and wish she had not been so frank. Mr. Brooke looked up and said quickly, young ladies in America love independence as much as their ancestors did, and are admired and respected for supporting themselves. Oh, yes, of course it's very nice and proper in them to do so. We have many most respectable and worthy young women who do the same and are employed by the nobility, because, being the daughters of gentlemen, they are both well-bred and accomplished, you know, said Miss Kate in a patronizing tone that hurt Meg's pride, and made her work seem not only more distasteful, but degrading. Did the German song suit, Miss March? inquired Mr. Brooke, breaking an awkward pause. Oh, yes. It was very sweet, and I'm much obliged to whoever translated it for me. And Meg's downcast face brightened as she spoke. Don't you read German? asked Miss Kate with a look of surprise. Not very well. My father, who taught me, is away, and I don't get on very fast alone, for I've no one to correct my pronunciation. Try a little now. Here is Schiller's Mary Stewart and a tutor who loves to teach. And Mr. Brooke laid his book on her lap with an inviting smile. It's so hard I'm afraid to try, said Meg, grateful but bashful in the presence of the accomplished young lady beside her. I'll read a bit to encourage you. And Miss Kate read one of the most beautiful passages in a perfectly correct but perfectly expressionless manner. Mr. Brooke made no comment as she returned the book to Meg, who said innocently, I thought it was poetry. Some of it is. Try this passage. There was a queer smile about Mr. Brooke's mouth as he opened at poor Mary's lament. Meg obediently following the long grass blade which her new tutor used to point with, read slowly and timidly, unconsciously making poetry of the hard words by the soft intonation of her musical voice. Down the page went the green guide, and presently, forgetting her listener in the beauty of the sad scene, Meg read as if alone, giving a little touch of tragedy to the words of the unhappy queen. If she had seen the brown eyes then, she would have stopped short, but she never looked up, and the lesson was not spoiled for her. Very well indeed, said Mr. Brooke, as she paused, quite ignoring her many mistakes, and looking as if he did indeed love to teach. Miss Kate put up her glass, and, having taken a survey of the little tableau before her, shut her sketchbook, saying with condescension, you've a nice accent and in time will be a clever reader. I advise you to learn, for German is a valuable accomplishment to teachers. I must look after Grace, she is romping. And Miss Kate strolled away, adding to herself with a shrug, I didn't come to chaperone a governess, though she is young and pretty. What odd people these Yankees are. I'm afraid Laurie will be quite spoiled among them. I forgot that English people rather turn up their noses at governesses and don't treat them as we do, said Meg, looking after the retreating figure with an annoyed expression. Tutors also have rather a hard time of it there, as I know to my sorrow. There's no place like America for us workers, Miss Margaret. And Mr. Brooke looked so contented and cheerful that Meg was ashamed to lament her hard lot. I'm glad I live in it then. I don't like my work, but I get a good deal of satisfaction out of it after all, so I won't complain. I only wished I liked teaching as you do. I think you would if you had Laurie for a pupil. I shall be very sorry to lose him next year, said Mr. Brooke, busily punching holes in the turf. Going to college, I suppose. Meg's lips asked the question, but her eyes added, and what becomes of you? Yes, it's high time he went, for he is ready, and as soon as he is off, I shall turn soldier. I am needed. I am glad of that, exclaimed Meg. I should think every young man would want to go, though it is hard for the mothers and sisters who stay at home, she added sorrowfully. I have neither and very few friends to care whether I live or die, said Mr. Brooke rather bitterly as he absently put the dead rose in the hole he had made and covered it up, like a little grave. Laurie and his grandfather would care a great deal, 
and we should all be very sorry to have any harm happen to you, said Meg heartily. Thank you, that sounds pleasant, began Mr. Brooke, looking cheerful again, but before he could finish his speech, Ned, mounted on the old horse, came lumbering up to display his equestrian skill before the young ladies, and there was no more quiet that day. Don't you love to ride? asked Grace of Amy, as they stood resting after a race round the field with the others, led by Ned. I dote upon it. My sister, Meg, used to ride when Papa was rich, but we don't keep any horses now, except Ellen Tree, added Amy, laughing. Tell me about Ellen Tree. Is it a donkey? asked Grace curiously. Why, you see, Joe is crazy about horses and so am I, but we've only got an old side saddle and no horse. Out in our garden is an apple tree that has a nice low branch, so Joe put the saddle on it, fixed some reins on the part that turns up, and we bounce away on Ellen Tree whenever we like. How funny, laughed Grace. I have a pony at home, and ride nearly every day in the park with Fred and Kate. It's very nice, for my friends go too, and the row is full of ladies and gentlemen. Dear, how charming. I hope I shall go abroad some day, but I'd rather go to Rome than the row, said Amy, who had not the remotest idea what the row was and wouldn't have asked for the world. Frank, sitting just behind the little girls, heard what they were saying, and pushed his crutch away from him with an impatient gesture as he watched the active lads going through all sorts of comical gymnastics. Beth, who was collecting the scattered author cards, looked up and said, in her shy yet friendly way, I'm afraid you are tired. Can I do anything for you? Talk to me, please. It's dull, sitting by myself, answered Frank, who had evidently been used to being made much of at home. If he asked her to deliver a Latin oration, it would not have seemed a more impossible task to bashful Beth but there was no place to run to, no Joe to hide behind now, and the poor boy looked so wistfully at her that she bravely resolved to try. What do you like to talk about? She asked, fumbling over the cards and dropping half as she tried to tie them up. Well, I like to hear about cricket and boating and hunting, said Frank, who had not yet learned to suit his amusements to his strength. My heart. What shall I do? I don't know anything about them, thought Beth, and forgetting the boy's misfortune in her flurry, she said, hoping to make him talk, I never saw any hunting, but I suppose you know all about it. I did once, but I can never hunt again, for I got hurt leaping a confounded five-barred gate, so there are no more horses and hounds for me, said Frank with a sigh that made Beth hate herself for her innocent blunder. Your deer are much prettier than our ugly buffaloes, she said, turning to the prairies for help and feeling glad that she had read one of the boy's books in which Joe delighted. Buffaloes proved soothing and satisfactory, and in her eagerness to amuse another, Beth forgot herself and was quite unconscious of her sister's surprise and delight at the unusual spectacle of Beth talking away to one of the dreadful boys, against whom she had begged protection. Bless her heart. She pities him, so she is good to him, said Joe, beaming at her from the croquet ground. I always said she was a little saint, added Meg, as if there could be no further doubt of it. I haven't heard Frank laugh so much for ever so long, said Grace to Amy, as they sat discussing dolls and making tea sets out of the acorn cups. My sister Beth is a very fastidious girl, when she likes to be, said Amy, well pleased at Beth's success. She meant fascinating, but as Grace didn't know the exact meaning of either word, fastidious sounded well and made a good impression. An impromptu circus, fox and geese, and an amicable game of croquet finished the afternoon. At sunset the tent was struck, hampers packed, wickets pulled up, boats loaded, and the whole party floated down the river, singing at the tops of their voices. Ned, getting sentimental, warbled a serenade with the pensive refrain. Alone, alone, ah. Whoa, alone. And at the lines. We each are young, we each have a heart. 
Oh, why should we stand thus coldly apart? He looked at Meg with such a lackadaisical expression that she laughed outright and spoiled his song. How can you be so cruel to me? He whispered, under cover of a lively chorus. You've kept close to that starched-up Englishwoman all day, and now you snub me. I didn't mean to, but you looked so funny I really couldn't help it, replied Meg, passing over the first part of his reproach, for it was quite true that she had shunned him, remembering the Moffat party and the talk after it. Ned was offended and turned to Sally for consolation, saying to her rather pettishly, there isn't a bit of flirt in that girl, is there? Not a particle, but she's a dear, returned Sally, defending her friend even while confessing her shortcomings. She's not a stricken dear anyway, said Ned, trying to be witty, and succeeding as well as very young gentlemen usually do. On the lawn where it had gathered, the little party separated with cordial good nights and goodbyes, for the Vaughns were going to Canada. As the four sisters went home through the garden, Miss Kate looked after them, saying, without the patronizing tone in her voice, in spite of their demonstrative manners, American girls are very nice when one knows them. I quite agree with you, said Mr. Brooke. Chapter 13 Castles in the Air Lorry lay luxuriously swinging to and fro in his hammock one warm September afternoon, wondering what his neighbors were about, but too lazy to go and find out. He was in one of his moods, for the day had been both unprofitable and unsatisfactory, and he was wishing he could live it over again. The hot weather made him indolent, and he had shirked his studies, tried Mr. Brooks' patience to the utmost, displeased his grandfather by practicing half the afternoon, frightened the maidservants half out of their wits by mischievously hinting that one of his dogs was going mad, and, after high words with the stableman about some fancied neglect of his horse, he had flung himself into his hammock to fume over the stupidity of the world in general, till the peace of the lovely day quieted him in spite of himself. Staring up into the green gloom of the horse-chestnut trees above him, he dreamed dreams of all sorts, and was just imagining himself tossing on the ocean in a voyage round the world, when the sound of voices brought him ashore in a flash. Peeping through the meshes of the hammock, he saw the marches coming out, as if bound on some expedition. What in the world are those girls about now? Thought Laurie, opening his sleepy eyes to take a good look, for there was something rather peculiar in the appearance of his neighbors. Each wore a large, flapping hat, a brown linen pouch slung over one shoulder, and carried a long staff. Meg had a cushion, Joe a book, Beth a basket, and Amy a portfolio. All walked quietly through the garden, out at the little back gate, and began to climb the hill that lay between the house and river. Well, that's cool, said Laurie to himself, to have a picnic and never ask me. They can't be going in the boat, for they haven't got the key. Perhaps they forgot it. I'll take it to them, and see what's going on. Though possessed of half a dozen hats, it took him some time to find one, then there was a hunt for the key, which was at last discovered in his pocket, so that the girls were quite out of sight when he leapt the fence and ran after them. Taking the shortest way to the boathouse, he waited for them to appear, but no one came, and he went up the hill to take an observation. A grove of pines covered one part of it, and from the heart of this green spot came a clearer sound than the soft sigh of the pines or the drowsy chirp of the crickets. Here's a landscape, thought Laurie, peeping through the bushes, and looking wide awake and good-natured already. It was a rather pretty little picture, for the sisters sat together in the shady nook, with sun and shadow flickering over them, the aromatic wind lifting their hair and cooling their hot cheeks, and all the little wood people going on with their affairs as if these were no strangers but old friends. Meg sat upon her cushion, sewing daintily with her white hands, and looking as fresh and sweet as a rose in her pink dress among the green. Beth was sorting the cones that lay thick under the hemlock nearby, for she made pretty things with them. Amy was sketching a group of ferns, and Joe was knitting as she read aloud. A shadow passed over the boy's face as he watched them, feeling that he ought to go away because uninvited, 
yet lingering because home seemed very lonely and this quiet party in the woods most attractive to his restless spirit. He stood so still that a squirrel, busy with its harvesting, ran down a pine close beside him, saw him suddenly and skipped back, scolding so shrilly that Beth looked up, espied the wistful face behind the birches, and beckoned with a reassuring smile. May I come in, please? Or shall I be a bother? He asked, advancing slowly. Meg lifted her eyebrows, but Joe scowled at her defiantly and said at once, of course you may. We should have asked you before, only we thought you wouldn't care for such a girl's game as this. I always like your games, but if Meg doesn't want me, I'll go away. I've no objection, if you do something. It's against the rules to be idle here, replied Meg gravely but graciously. Much obliged. I'll do anything if you'll let me stop a bit, for it's as dull as the desert of Sahara down there. Shall I sew, read, cone, draw or do all at once? Bring on your bears. I'm ready. And Laurie sat down with a submissive expression delightful to behold. Finish this story while I set my heel, said Joe, handing him the book. Yesum. Was the meek answer, as he began, doing his best to prove his gratitude for the favor of admission into the Busy Bee Society. The story was not a long one, and when it was finished, he ventured to ask a few questions as a reward of merit. Please, ma'am, could I inquire if this highly instructive and charming institution is a new one? Would you tell him? Asked Meg of her sisters. He'll laugh, said Amy warningly. Who cares? Said Joe. I guess he'll like it, added Beth. Of course I shall. I give you my word I won't laugh. Tell away, Joe, and don't be afraid. The idea of being afraid of you. Well, you see we used to play Pilgrim's Progress, and we have been going on with it in earnest, all winter and summer. Yes, I know, said Laurie, nodding wisely. Who told you? Demanded Joe. Spirits. No, I did. I wanted to amuse him one night when you were all away, and he was rather dismal. He did like it, so don't scold, Joe, said Beth meekly. You can't keep a secret. Never mind, it saves trouble now. Go on, please, said Laurie, as Joe became absorbed in her work, looking a trifle displeased. Oh, didn't she tell you about this new plan of ours? Well, we have tried not to waste our holiday, but each has had a task and worked at it with a will. The vacation is nearly over, the stints are all done, and we are ever so glad that we didn't dawdle. Yes, I should think so, and Laurie thought regretfully of his own idle days. Mother likes to have us out of doors as much as possible, so we bring our work here and have nice times. For the fun of it we bring our things in these bags, wear the old hats, use poles to climb the hill, and play pilgrims, as we used to do years ago. We call this hill the Delectable Mountain, for we can look far away and see the country where we hope to live some time. Joe pointed, and Laurie sat up to examine, for through an opening in the wood one could look across the wide, blue river, the meadows on the other side, far over the outskirts of the great city, to the green hills that rose to meet the sky. The sun was low, and the heavens glowed with the splendor of an autumn sunset. Gold and purple clouds lay on the hilltops, and rising high into the ruddy light were silvery white peaks that shone like the airy spires of some celestial city. How beautiful that is, said Laurie softly, for he was quick to see and feel beauty of any kind. It's often so, and we like to watch it, for it is never the same, but always splendid, replied Amy, wishing she could paint it. Joe talks about the country where we hope to live sometime, the real country, she means, with pigs and chickens and haymaking. It would be nice, but I wish the beautiful country up there was real, and we could ever go to it, said Beth musingly. There is a lovelier country even than that, where we shall go, by and by, when we are good enough, answered Meg with her sweetest voice. 
It seems so long to wait, so hard to do. I want to fly away at once, as those swallows fly, and go in at that splendid gate. You'll get there, Beth, sooner or later, no fear of that, said Joe. I'm the one that will have to fight and work, and climb and wait, and maybe never get in after all. You'll have me for company, if that's any comfort. I shall have to do a deal of traveling before I come in sight of your celestial city. If I arrive late, you'll say a good word for me, won't you, Beth? Something in the boy's face troubled his little friend, but she said cheerfully, with her quiet eyes on the changing clouds, if people really want to go, and really try all their lives, I think they will get in, for I don't believe there are any locks on that door or any guards at the gate. I always imagine it is as it is in the picture, where the shining ones stretch out their hands to welcome poor Christian as he comes up from the river. Wouldn't it be fun if all the castles in the air which we make could come true, and we could live in them? said Joe, after a little pause. I've made such quantities it would be hard to choose which I'd have, said Laurie, lying flat and throwing cones at the squirrel who had betrayed him. You'd have to take your favorite one. What is it? asked Meg. If I tell mine, will you tell yours? Yes, if the girls will too. We will. Now, Laurie. After I'd seen as much of the world as I want to, I'd like to settle in Germany and have just as much music as I choose. I'm to be a famous musician myself, and all creation is to rush to hear me. And I'm never to be bothered about money or business, but just enjoy myself and live for what I like. That's my favorite castle. What's yours, Meg? Margaret seemed to find it a little hard to tell hers, and waved a break before her face, as if to disperse imaginary gnats, while she said slowly, I should like a lovely house, full of all sorts of luxurious things, nice food, pretty clothes, handsome furniture, pleasant people, and heaps of money. I am to be mistress of it, and manage it as I like, with plenty of servants, so I never need work a bit. How I should enjoy it! For I wouldn't be idle, but do good, and make everyone love me dearly. Wouldn't you have a master for your castle in the air? asked Lori slyly. I said pleasant people, you know, and Meg carefully tied up her shoe as she spoke, so that no one saw her face. Why don't you say you'd have a splendid, wise, good husband and some angelic little children? You know your castle wouldn't be perfect without, said Blunt Joe, who had no tender fancies yet, and rather scorned romance, except in books. You'd have nothing but horses, inkstands, and novels in yours, answered Meg petulantly. Wouldn't I though? I'd have a stable full of Arabian steeds, rooms piled high with books, and I'd write out of a magic inkstand, so that my works should be as famous as Laurie's music. I want to do something splendid before I go into my castle, something heroic or wonderful that won't be forgotten after I'm dead. I don't know what, but I'm on the watch for it, and mean to astonish you all some day. I think I shall write books, and get rich and famous, that would suit me, so that is my favorite dream. Mine is to stay at home safe with father and mother, and help take care of the family, said Beth contentedly. Don't you wish for anything else? asked Laurie. Since I had my little piano, I am perfectly satisfied. I only wish we may all keep well and be together, nothing else. I have ever so many wishes, but the pet one is to be an artist, and go to Rome, and do fine pictures, and be the best artist in the whole world, was Amy's modest desire. We're an ambitious set, aren't we? Every one of us, but Beth, wants to be rich and famous, and gorgeous in every respect. I do wonder if any of us will ever get our wishes, said Laurie, chewing grass like a meditative calf. I've got the key to my castle in the air, but whether I can unlock the door remains to be seen, observed Joe mysteriously. I've got the key to mine, but I'm not allowed to try it. Hang college. Muttered Laurie with an impatient sigh. Here's mine. And Amy waved her pencil. I haven't got any, said Meg forlornly. Yes, you have, 
said Laurie at once. Where? In your face. Nonsense, that's of no use. Wait and see if it doesn't bring you something worth having, replied the boy, laughing at the thought of a charming little secret which he fancied he knew. Meg colored behind the brake, but asked no questions and looked across the river with the same expectant expression which Mr. Brooke had worn when he told the story of the night. If we are all alive ten years hence, let's meet, and see how many of us have got our wishes, or how much nearer we are then than now, said Joe, always ready with a plan. Bless me! How old I shall be, twenty-seven, exclaimed Meg, who felt grown up already, having just reached seventeen. You and I will be twenty-six, Teddy, Beth twenty-four, and Amy twenty-two. What a venerable party, said Joe. I hope I shall have done something to be proud of by that time, but I'm such a lazy dog, I'm afraid I shall dawdle, Joe. You need a motive, mother says, and when you get it, she is sure you'll work splendidly. Is she? By Jupiter, I will, if I only get the chance, cried Lori, sitting up with sudden energy. I ought to be satisfied to please grandfather, and I do try, but it's working against the grain, you see, and comes hard. He wants me to be an India merchant, as he was, and I'd rather be shot. I hate tea and silk and spices, and every sort of rubbish his old ships bring, and I don't care how soon they go to the bottom when I own them. Going to college ought to satisfy him, for if I give him four years he ought to let me off from the business. But he's set, and I've got to do just as he did, unless I break away and please myself, as my father did. If there was anyone left to stay with the old gentleman, I'd do it tomorrow. Laurie spoke excitedly, and looked ready to carry his threat into execution on the slightest provocation, for he was growing up very fast and, in spite of his indolent ways, had a young man's hatred of subjection, a young man's restless longing to try the world for himself. I advise you to sail away in one of your ships, and never come home again till you have tried your own way, said Joe, whose imagination was fired by the thought of such a daring exploit, and whose sympathy was excited by what she called Teddy's wrongs. That's not right, Joe. You mustn't talk in that way, and Laurie mustn't take your bad advice. You should do just what your grandfather wishes, my dear boy, said Meg in her most maternal tone. Do your best at college, and when he sees that you try to please him, I'm sure he won't be hard on you or unjust to you. As you say, there is no one else to stay with and love him, and you'd never forgive yourself if you left him without his permission. Don't be dismal or fret, but do your duty and you'll get your reward, as good Mr. Brooke has, by being respected and loved. What do you know about him? Asked Lori, grateful for the good advice, but objecting to the lecture, and glad to turn the conversation from himself after his unusual outbreak. Only what your grandpa told us about him, how he took good care of his own mother till she died, and wouldn't go abroad as tutor to some nice person because he wouldn't leave her. And how he provides now for an old woman who nursed his mother, and never tells anyone, but is just as generous and patient and good as he can be. So he is, dear old fellow, said Laurie heartily, as Meg paused, looking flushed and earnest with her story. It's like Grandpa to find out all about him without letting him know, and to tell all his goodness to others, so that they might like him. Brooke couldn't understand why your mother was so kind to him, asking him over with me and treating him in her beautiful friendly way. He thought she was just perfect, and talked about it for days and days, and went on about you all in flaming style. If ever I do get my wish, you see what I'll do for Brooke. Begin to do something now by not plaguing his life out, said Meg sharply. How do you know I do, miss? I can always tell by his face when he goes away. If you have been good, he looks satisfied and walks briskly. If you have plagued him, he's sober and walks slowly, as if he wanted to go back and do his work better. Well, I like that. So you keep an account of my good and bad marks in Brooke's face, do you? I see him bow and smile as he passes your window, but I didn't know you'd got up a telegraph.
We haven't. Don't be angry, and oh, don't tell him I said anything. It was only to show that I cared how you get on, and what is said here is said in confidence, you know, cried Meg, much alarmed at the thought of what might follow from her careless speech. I don't tell tales, replied Laurie, with his high and mighty air, as Joe called a certain expression which he occasionally wore. Only if Brooke is going to be a thermometer, I must mind and have fair weather for him to report. Please don't be offended. I didn't mean to preach or tell tales or be silly. I only thought Joe was encouraging you in a feeling which you'd be sorry for by and by. You are so kind to us, we feel as if you were our brother and say just what we think. Forgive me, I meant it kindly. And Meg offered her hand with a gesture both affectionate and timid. Ashamed of his momentary pique, Laurie squeezed the kind little hand, and said frankly, I'm the one to be forgiven. I'm cross and have been out of sorts all day. I'd like to have you tell me my faults and be sisterly, so don't mind if I am grumpy sometimes. I thank you all the same. Bennett on showing that he was not offended, he made himself as agreeable as possible, wound cotton for Meg, recited poetry to please Joe, shook down cones for Beth, and helped Amy with her ferns, proving himself a fit person to belong to the Busy Bee Society. In the midst of an animated discussion on the domestic habits of turtles, one of those amiable creatures having strolled up from the river, the faint sound of a bell warned them that Hannah had put the tea to draw, and they would just have time to get home to supper. May I come again? asked Laurie. Yes, if you are good, and love your book, as the boys in the primer are told to do, said Meg, smiling. I'll try. Then you may come, and I'll teach you to knit as the Scotchmen do. There's a demand for socks just now, added Joe, waving hers like a big blue worsted banner as they parted at the gate. That night, when Beth played to Mr. Lawrence in the twilight, Laurie, standing in the shadow of the curtain, listened to the little David, whose simple music always quieted his moody spirit, and watched the old man, who sat with his grey head on his hand, thinking tender thoughts of the dead child he had loved so much. Remembering the conversation of the afternoon, the boy said to himself, with the resolve to make the sacrifice cheerfully, I'll let my castle go, and stay with the dear old gentleman while he needs me, for I am all he has. Chapter 14 Secrets Joe was very busy in the garret, for the October days began to grow chilly, and the afternoons were short. For two or three hours the sun lay warmly in the high window, showing Joe seated on the old sofa, writing busily, with her paper spread out upon a trunk before her, while Scrabble, the pet rat, promenaded the beams overhead, accompanied by his oldest son, a fine young fellow, who was evidently very proud of his whiskers. Quite absorbed in her work, Joe scribbled away till the last page was filled, when she signed her name with a flourish and threw down her pen, exclaiming. There, I've done my best. If this won't suit I shall have to wait till I can do better. Lying back on the sofa, she read the manuscript carefully through, making dashes here and there, and putting in many exclamation points, which looked like little balloons. Then she tied it up with a smart red ribbon, and sat a minute looking at it with a sober, wistful expression, which plainly showed how earnest her work had been. Joe's desk up here was an old tin kitchen which hung against the wall. In it she kept her papers, and a few books, safely shut away from Scrabble, who, being likewise of a literary turn, was fond of making a circulating library of such books as were left in his way by eating the leaves. From this tin receptacle Joe produced another manuscript, and putting both in her pocket, crept quietly downstairs, leaving her friends to nibble on her pens and taste her ink. She put on her hat and jacket as noiselessly as possible, and going to the back entry window, got out upon the roof of a low porch, swung herself down to the grassy bank, and took a roundabout way to the road. Once there, she composed herself, hailed a passing omnibus, and rolled away to town, looking very merry and mysterious. If anyone had been watching her, he would have thought her movements decidedly peculiar, for on alighting, 
she went off at a great pace till she reached a certain number in a certain busy street. Having found the place with some difficulty, she went into the doorway, looked up the dirty stairs, and after standing stock still a minute, suddenly dived into the street and walked away as rapidly as she came. This maneuver she repeated several times, to the great amusement of a black-eyed young gentleman lounging in the window of a building opposite. On returning for the third time, Joe gave herself a shake, pulled her hat over her eyes, and walked up the stairs, looking as if she were going to have all her teeth out. There was a dentist's sign, among others, which adorned the entrance, and after staring a moment at the pair of artificial jaws which slowly opened and shut to draw attention to a fine set of teeth, the young gentleman put on his coat, took his hat, and went down to post himself in the opposite doorway, saying with a smile and a shiver, it's like her to come alone, but if she has a bad time she'll need someone to help her home. In ten minutes Joe came running downstairs with a very red face and the general appearance of a person who had just passed through a trying ordeal of some sort. When she saw the young gentleman she looked anything but pleased, and passed him with a nod. But he followed, asking with an air of sympathy, did you have a bad time? Not very. You got through quickly. Yes, thank goodness. Why did you go alone? Didn't want anyone to know. You're the oddest fellow I ever saw. How many did you have out? Joe looked at her friend as if she did not understand him, then began to laugh as if mightily amused at something. There are two which I want to have come out, but I must wait a week. What are you laughing at? You are up to some mischief, Joe, said Laurie, looking mystified. So are you. What were you doing, sir, up in that billiard saloon? Begging your pardon, ma'am, it wasn't a billiard saloon, but a gymnasium, and I was taking a lesson in fencing. I'm glad of that. Why? You can teach me, and then when we play Hamlet, you can be Laertes, and we'll make a fine thing of the fencing scene. Laurie burst out with a hearty boy's laugh, which made several passers-by smile in spite of themselves. I'll teach you whether we play Hamlet or not. It's grand fun and will straighten you up capitally. But I don't believe that was your only reason for saying I'm glad in that decided way, was it now? No, I was glad that you were not in the saloon, because I hope you never go to such places. Do you? Not often. I wish you wouldn't. It's no harm, Joe. I have billiards at home, but it's no fun unless you have good players, so, as I'm fond of it, I come sometimes and have a game with Ned Moffat or some of the other fellows. Oh, dear, I'm so sorry, for you'll get to liking it better and better, and will waste time and money, and grow like those dreadful boys. I did hope you'd stay respectable and be a satisfaction to your friends, said Joe, shaking her head. Can a fellow take a little innocent amusement now and then without losing his respectability? Asked Laurie, looking nettled. That depends upon how and where he takes it. I don't like Ned and his set, and wish you'd keep out of it. Mother won't let us have him at our house, though he wants to come. And if you grow like him she won't be willing to have us frolic together as we do now. Won't she? Asked Laurie anxiously. No, she can't bear fashionable young men, and she'd shut us all up in bandboxes rather than have us associate with them. Well, she needn't get out her bandboxes yet. I'm not a fashionable party and don't mean to be, but I do like harmless larks now and then, don't you? Yes, nobody minds them, so lark away, but don't get wild, will you? Or there will be an end of all our good times. I'll be a double distilled saint. I can't bear saints. Just be a simple, honest, respectable boy, and will never desert you. I don't know what I should do if you acted like Mr. King's son. He had plenty of money, but didn't know how to spend it, and got tipsy and gambled, and ran away, and forged his father's name, I believe, and was altogether horrid. You think I'm likely to do the same? Much obliged. No, I don't, oh, dear, no. 
but I hear people talking about money being such a temptation, and I sometimes wish you were poor. I shouldn't worry then. Do you worry about me, Joe? A little, when you look moody and discontented, as you sometimes do, for you've got such a strong will, if you once get started wrong, I'm afraid it would be hard to stop you. Lori walked in silence a few minutes, and Joe watched him, wishing she had held her tongue, for his eyes looked angry, though his lips smiled as if at her warnings. Are you going to deliver lectures all the way home? He asked presently. Of course not. Why? Because if you are, I'll take a bus. If you're not, I'd like to walk with you and tell you something very interesting. I won't preach any more, and I'd like to hear the news immensely. Very well, then, come on. It's a secret, and if I tell you, you must tell me yours. I haven't got any, began Joe, but stopped suddenly, remembering that she had. You know you have, you can't hide anything, so up and fess, or I won't tell, cried Lori. Is your secret a nice one? Oh, isn't it? All about people you know, and such fun. You ought to hear it, and I've been aching to tell it this long time. Come, you begin. You'll not say anything about it at home, will you? Not a word. And you won't tease me in private? I never tease. Yes, you do. You get everything you want out of people. I don't know how you do it, but you are a born wheedler. Thank you. Fire away. Well, I've left two stories with a newspaper man, and he's to give his answer next week, whispered Joe, in her confidant's ear. Hurrah for Miss March, the celebrated American authoress, cried Laurie, throwing up his hat and catching it again, to the great delight of two ducks, four cats, five hens, and half a dozen Irish children, for they were out of the city now. Hush! It won't come to anything, I dare say, but I couldn't rest till I had tried, and I said nothing about it because I didn't want anyone else to be disappointed. It won't fail. Why, Joe, your stories are works of Shakespeare compared to half the rubbish that is published every day. Won't it be fun to see them in print, and shan't we feel proud of our authoress? Joe's eyes sparkled, for it is always pleasant to be believed in, and a friend's praise is always sweeter than a dozen newspaper puffs. Where's your secret? Play fair, Teddy, or I'll never believe you again, she said, trying to extinguish the brilliant hopes that blazed up at a word of encouragement. I may get into a scrape for telling, but I didn't promise not to, so I will, for I never feel easy in my mind till I've told you any plummy bit of news I get. I know where Meg's glove is. Is that all? said Joe, looking disappointed, as Laurie nodded and twinkled with a face full of mysterious intelligence. It's quite enough for the present, as you'll agree when I tell you where it is. Tell, then. Laurie bent, and whispered three words in Joe's ear, which produced a comical change. She stood and stared at him for a minute, looking both surprised and displeased, then walked on, saying sharply, How do you know? Saw it. Where? Pocket. All this time. Yes, isn't that romantic? No, it's horrid. Don't you like it? Of course I don't. It's ridiculous, it won't be allowed. My patience. What would Meg say? You are not to tell anyone. Mind that. I didn't promise. That was understood, and I trusted you. Well, I won't for the present, anyway, but I'm disgusted, and wish you hadn't told me. I thought you'd be pleased. At the idea of anybody coming to take Meg away? No, thank you. You'll feel better about it when somebody comes to take you away. I'd like to see anyone try it, cried Joe fiercely. So should I. And Laurie chuckled at the idea. I don't think secrets agree with me, I feel rumpled up in my mind since you told me that, said Joe rather ungratefully. Race down this hill with me, 
and you'll be all right, suggested Lori. No one was in sight, the smooth road sloped invitingly before her, and finding the temptation irresistible, Joe darted away, soon leaving hat and comb behind her and scattering hairpins as she ran. Lori reached the goal first and was quite satisfied with the success of his treatment, for his Atlanta came panning up with flying hair, bright eyes, ruddy cheeks, and no signs of dissatisfaction in her face. I wish I was a horse, then I could run for miles in this splendid air, and not lose my breath. It was capital, but see what a guy it's made me. Go, pick up my things, like a cherub, as you are, said Joe, dropping down under a maple tree, which was carpeting the bank with crimson leaves. Lori leisurely departed to recover the lost property, and Joe bundled up her braids, hoping no one would pass by till she was tidy again. But someone did pass, and who should it be but Meg, looking particularly ladylike in her state and festival suit, for she had been making calls. What in the world are you doing here? She asked, regarding her disheveled sister with well-bred surprise. Getting leaves, meekly answered Joe, sorting the rosy handful she had just swept up. And hairpins, added Lori, throwing half a dozen into Joe's lap. They grow on this road, Meg, so do combs and brown straw hats. You have been running, Joe. How could you? When will you stop such romping ways? said Meg reprovingly, as she settled her cuffs and smoothed her hair, with which the wind had taken liberties. Never till I'm stiff and old and have to use a crutch. Don't try to make me grow up before my time, Meg. It's hard enough to have you change all of a sudden. Let me be a little girl as long as I can. As she spoke, Joe bent over the leaves to hide the trembling of her lips, for lately she had felt that Margaret was fast getting to be a woman, and Lori's secret made her dread the separation which must surely come some time and, and now seemed very near. He saw the trouble in her face and drew Meg's attention from it by asking quickly, where have you been calling, all so fine. At the gardener's, and Sally has been telling me all about Belle Moffat's wedding. It was very splendid, and they have gone to spend the winter in Paris. Just think how delightful that must be. Do you envy her, Meg? said Lori. I'm afraid I do. I'm glad of it, muttered Joe, tying on her hat with a jerk. Why? asked Meg, looking surprised. Because if you care much about riches, you will never go and marry a poor man, said Joe, frowning at Lori, who was mutely warning her to mind what she said. I shall never go and marry anyone, observed Meg, walking on with great dignity while the others followed, laughing, whispering, skipping stones, and behaving like children, as Meg said to herself, though she might have been tempted to join them if she had not had her best dress on. For a week or two, Joe behaved so queerly that her sisters were quite bewildered. She rushed to the door when the postman rang, was rude to Mr. Brooke whenever they met, would sit looking at Meg with a woebegone face, occasionally jumping up to shake and then kiss her in a very mysterious manner. Lori and she were always making signs to one another, and talking about spread eagles till the girls declared they had both lost their wits. On the second Saturday after Joe got out of the window, Meg, as she sat sewing at her window, was scandalized by the sight of Lori chasing Joe all over the garden and finally capturing her in Amy's bower. What went on there, Meg could not see, but shrieks of laughter were heard, followed by the murmur of voices and a great flapping of newspapers. What shall we do with that girl? She never will behave like a young lady, sighed Meg, as she watched the race with a disapproving face. I hope she won't. She is so funny and dear as she is, said Beth, who had never betrayed that she was a little hurt at Joe's having secrets with anyone but her. It's very trying, but we never can make her call me la foe, added Amy who sat making some new frills for herself, with her curls tied up in a very becoming way, two agreeable things that made her feel unusually elegant and ladylike. In a few minutes Joe bounced in, laid herself on the sofa, and affected to read. 
Have you anything interesting there? Asked Meg, with condescension. Nothing but a story, won't amount to much, I guess, returned Joe, carefully keeping the name of the paper out of sight. You'd better read it aloud. That will amuse us and keep you out of mischief, said Amy in her most grown-up tone. What's the name? Asked Beth, wondering why Joe kept her face behind the sheet. The Rival Painters. That sounds well. Read it, said Meg. With a loud hem. And a long breath, Joe began to read very fast. The girls listened with interest, for the tale was romantic, and somewhat pathetic, as most of the characters died in the end. I like that about the splendid picture, was Amy's approving remark, as Joe paused. I prefer the lovering part. Viola and Angelo are two of our favorite names, isn't that queer? Said Meg, wiping her eyes, for the lovering part was tragical. Who wrote it? Asked Beth, who had caught a glimpse of Joe's face. The reader suddenly sat up, cast away the paper, displaying a flushed countenance, and with a funny mixture of solemnity and excitement replied in a loud voice, Your sister. You? cried Meg, dropping her work. It's very good, said Amy critically. I knew it. I knew it. Oh my Joe, I am so proud. And Beth ran to hug her sister and exult over this splendid success. Dear me, how delighted they all were, to be sure. How Meg wouldn't believe it till she saw the words. Miss Josephine March, actually printed in the paper. How graciously Amy criticized the artistic parts of the story, and offered hints for a sequel, which unfortunately couldn't be carried out, as the hero and heroine were dead. How Beth got excited, and skipped and sang with joy. How Hannah came in to exclaim, sakes alive, well I never. In great astonishment at that Joe's doings. How proud Mrs. March was when she knew it. How Joe laughed, with tears in her eyes, as she declared she might as well be a peacock and done with it, and how the spread eagle might be said to flap his wings triumphantly over the house of March, as the paper passed from hand to hand. Tell us about it. When did it come? How much did you get for it? What will father say? Won't Lori laugh? cried the family, all in one breath as they clustered about Joe, for these foolish, affectionate people made a jubilee of every little household joy. Stop jabbering, girls, and I'll tell you everything, said Joe, wondering if Miss Bernie felt any grander over her Evelina than she did over her rival painters. Having told how she disposed of her tales, Joe added, and when I went to get my answer, the man said he liked them both, but didn't pay beginners, only let them print in his paper, and notice the stories. It was good practice, he said, and when the beginners improved, anyone would pay. So I let him have the two stories, and today this was sent to me, and Laurie caught me with it and insisted on seeing it, so I let him. And he said it was good, and I shall write more, and he's going to get the next paid for, and I am so happy, for in time I may be able to support myself and help the girls. Joe's breath gave out here, and wrapping her head in the paper, she bedewed her little story with a few natural tears, for to be independent and earn the praise of those she loved were the dearest wishes of her heart, and this seemed to be the first step toward that happy end. エンゴ聞き流し世界名作リスニング英語テキストとMP3ダウンロード他の物語はホームページからご利用いただけます。88thpp.com88thpp.com